0: You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit enduringword.com. Thank you so much for coming on our show today. My name is David Guzik if we've never been introduced before, and this is our Thursday afternoon live Q&A. The last time I spoke to you from this live Q&A, was because uh, I was when I was on a cruise ship. We took an enduring word cruise, led a group of 120 people uh, on a Mediterranean cruise. And our intention on that cruise was to visit uh, Israel for three days, uh, uh, Egypt for two days, and then also make a stop in uh, Turkey at Ephesus. And of all those scheduled stops, the only one that we made it to was Ephesus. Now we visited other places, Greek islands, Cyprus, other places. There were places that we had. We The cruise ship didn't turn around and go back to Athens. But I'll tell you, it was an interesting trip. And um, we were sailing into uh, Haifa port on October 7th, the day that all this uh, terrible thing happened. Hamas's brutal attack against Israel, and then now Israel's response of a declaration of war against Hamas, and how that's all playing out now. Uh, Which brings me to the lead question for today. Um, What is God's plan for Israel? What's God's future for Israel? And so let me go over a few things, because people are asking these questions, and I don't think it's inappropriate. I think it's a very appropriate question for people to ask today. What is God's future for Israel? So first of all, I would say, number one, uh, God has a plan for Israel, the Jewish people. Surprisingly, many Christians believe that God no longer has a future for the Jewish people, that God is finished with Israel as Israel, uh, just as they would say that God has no unique future for the Italian people, or the Swedish people, or the Ugandan people, they would say God has no future for the Israeli people. But friends, God made an everlasting covenant with Israel, the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has promised the land of Israel to the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's promised that to them with everlasting promises. May I remind you here of Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, which says, um, let's start at Genesis chapter 13, verse 15, which says, uh, for all the land which you see, I give to you and to your descendants forever. And then Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, also I give to you and to your descendants after you, the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, friends, there's many Christians who somehow can't resist spiritualizing all this. For them, land doesn't mean land. Descendants doesn't mean descendants. Forever doesn't mean forever. And everlasting possession doesn't mean everlasting possession. They spiritualize it all as being for the church today. Now, while there may be a spiritual application of some of these truths, it doesn't erase the plan, the, the, the plain, simple meaning that these words had to those whom God first spoke them. So remember that the application of God's promises may become more, but it will never become less. God called Israel the land of Israel, even when it was under Roman rule and not an independent state. You can see that from the many uses in the New Testament. And centuries after those promises to Abraham, God confirmed his commitment to Israel in the strongest possible terms. Let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 35. Just listen carefully to these words. And you tell me if God has given up on Israel. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. Now, I find it remarkable that despite such clear, compelling statements as that in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 35 through 37, there are people who say that God has cast off the seed of Israel, that God has given up that the seed of Israel has ceased to be a nation before the Lord. And God says, basically, go out and look. If there's a sun in the sky and a moon and stars in the skies at night, then he still has a place, a role, a a a role for Israel as a nation. It's so plain. Now, it's true. There are some Christians who mistakenly think that the truth of a spiritual Israel— somehow replaces or erases God's plan for national Israel, or maybe we should say ethnic Israel. You see, in Galatians chapter three, Paul makes the point that God accounted Abraham to be righteous in right relationship with God because Abraham believed. He trusted in, relied on and clung to God and his promises. That's when Paul wrote this in Galatians 3, 7, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Now, friends, this is the important idea of spiritual Israel. A man or woman of faith is more connected to Abraham spiritually than those who are connected to Abraham genetically. But none of this replaces or erases the idea of a national or ethnic Israel the Jewish people that are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I would say Gentile proselytes who became part of Israel. You see, I would put it this way very plainly, that the Jewish people are a chosen people. Remember what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all peoples on the face of the earth. Now, I find it remarkable that there's people who say, oh, no, 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 uh, Israel or the Jewish people are no longer a chosen people. Now the church is a chosen people, as if the two ideas contradict each other. Friends, Israel is precious to God as the apple of his eye, Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8 says. But notice this, they are a chosen people but they're not chosen to universal salvation. Israel's chosenness is not that everyone in Israel is saved. Every Jewish person is saved just because they're Jewish. No, but what they are chosen for is to have an important role in God's unfolding plan of the ages. And that role did not end with Israel's part in bringing forth the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, there's one other thing I need to say. The modern state of Israel and the Jewish people are not the same thing. The Jewish people encompass a body that's bigger than the modern state of Israel. Now, one can criticize the policies or the actions of the state of Israel and still be supportive of the Jewish people. However, I would say this without reservation— calls to eliminate or to destroy the state of Israel are unbiblical and fundamentally anti-Jewish. I don't see why we can't hold both in Israel. Israel has a right to the land, and I would say that biblically, morally, politically, Israel has a right to the land, and Israel has a responsibility To its own citizens, both Jewish and Arab, and Druze for that matter, and Christian, Israel has a responsibility to its own citizens and to its neighbor nations to conduct itself rightly before them. They have a right to the land and the responsibility to conduct themselves rightly. Now, Israel has a future in God's plan. And what is their future? Well, I'll just talk about it very quickly so that we can get on to the questions in the live chat. Israel will be a burden to the nations. None of them are going to help her in the end times. Uh, There will be a time of Jacob's trouble, a time of great calamity that we commonly call the Great Tribulation. But God will use this time to deliver Israel Uh, through a time of incomparable tribulation to come against the Jewish people. God will rescue them and bring them his salvation. He will protect them and bring them to faith in Jesus Christ, their Messiah, despite the fact that they will be attacked. God will protect Israel. Israel and restore them to faith. And friends, if the restoration of the Jewish people to repentance and faith is a blessing for them, it will also be a blessing for the church itself. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11, verse 12, speaking of Israel. Now, if their fall is riches for their world, Uh, for the world, and their failures, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Yes, when Israel is restored, coming to faith in Jesus Christ, their Messiah, it will be a blessing not only for Israel, but for the whole world. Friends, God will pour out his spirit upon Israel and do his great work of restoration. Right now, Israel is gathered in unbelief. We see that very plainly. They're gathered in unbelief as described in Ezekiel chapter 37 with the vision of the valley of the dry bones. They're gathered together in unbelief and and new life, a regeneration comes to them at the end of their assembling and strengthening and coordination. That's the very last part of the piece, not the first part of it. So, even now, Israel is gathered in unbelief, but God has a purpose for them. They have an enduring role in God's unfolding plan of the nations. They are a chosen people, not chosen to salvation. Well, eventually, they will be a, a redeemed Messiah trusting people? Absolutely. But in the present, uh, nobody will get to heaven by rejecting Jesus and being Jesus. No, not at all. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But here's the important part to remember, is that they are chosen to have that enduring role, that enduring position in God's unfolding plan of the ages. So I hope that's helpful for you. Um, just a little bit on what God's plan is for Israel in the unfolding um, plan of the ages. Uh, Believers, please, God has not rejected Israel. God has not replaced Israel. God has not erased Israel by just subsuming it under the church. God has an enduring role even until the end of the age for the people of Israel. Uh, They are chosen for that purpose. And may I say, Israel's status as a chosen people, as having a special role in God's unfolding plan of the ages, uh, that isn't all blessing. In many ways, substantially, it's been a burden upon the Jewish people, yet it remains nevertheless. Okay, that's it for our lead question. Let me go in now to the questions coming in on the live chat. Alfredo asks a question. He asks this, "Um, what are your thoughts on Martin Luther's book on the Jews and their lies? Why are modern Christian Zionists and all throughout history in the religion of Judaism condemned? Well, Alfredo, you're asking a very good question here. Excuse me while I finish my coffee right there. Alfredo, it is absolutely true that for most of Christianity, Christianity has been largely marked, I won't say universally, but largely marked by Jew hatred. Sometimes we use the phrase anti Semitism, which is sort of an interesting phrase because uh, Arabic people are just as Semitic as Jewish people. And when somebody uses the phrase anti Semite, they're not referring to Arabs, they're referring to Jews. Uh, But anyway, I I prefer the term Jew hatred. And it's true that for the majority of church history, most Christians were raised in an environment in the official policy of the church was to hate the Jewish people. And in some measure, Martin Luther reflected that in his book, On the Jews and Their Lies. Alfredo, what a lot of people don't know about Martin Luther is that in the early days of the Reformation, Luther was very conciliatory and reaching out to the Jewish community in Germany. Luther said things like this, sarcastically, he said if it's a mark of a good Christian to hate the Jews, oh, then what good Christians we are. And he criticized the Roman Catholic Church for their Jew hatred and their persecution of the Jews. But what Martin Luther thought was that by this more generous attitude towards the Jewish people, that the Jewish people would respond and take part in his great work of reformation, that they would receive Christ. When the Jewish people of his day rejected the kind overtures or what Martin Luther thought were his kind overtures, then um, Luther rejected the Jewish people. And I kind of believe that, um, well, look, I, I can't prove this. Friends, I might be wrong about this, but I, I do know that in Martin Luther's old age, he wasn't all himself. And it could be that some of his anti Semitic writings, his Jew hatred writings, uh, came out of seasons in his life. But there's no denying that he wrote those things. There's no denying that Martin Luther published terrible writings against the Jewish people, calling for Jews to be killed and their synagogues to be destroyed. But that has been the approach to Judaism through much of church history. And Alfredo, I just got to say, I think that's shameful. I think that that is an elaborate satanic attack upon the Jewish, upon the Christian church was to lure them into Jew hatred. And it explains a lot of some very difficult periods of church history. So while it's true that the past of Christianity is filled with a lot of regrettable, lamentable Jew hatred, modern evangelicals, and I would say the Christian world uh, mostly today, uh, shows a lot of love and understanding and acceptance towards the Jews, which it should be. It's true, um, most of Christianity has been very hostile through history to the Jewish people, but it's a good thing that people recognize. Uh, number one, the essential Jewish roots of Christianity, number two, that Christians recognize that God has an enduring role for the Jewish people in his unfolding plan of the ages, and number three, that uh, Christians should love the Jewish people because God has a particular love for the Jewish people. Again, it's not a love unto salvation. It's very grieving sometimes to hear some Christian teachers teach, and I'm grateful that there's not many of these, but there's some of them out there, that God has two tracks of salvation, that there's a Christian track of salvation and there's a Jewish track of salvation. That's not true at all. Friends, there's one way to God. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And any Jewish person who is saved is saved uh, because they put their trust in Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about that. However, however, there is still a chosen place for the Jewish people, not chosen unto salvation, but to have a crucial role in God's unfolding plan. The Jewish people have a role in God's unfolding plan of the ages that the Irish people don't have. Now, I'm not saying that the Irish people have no role in God's plan. Of course they do. But there's a special role for Israel. Uh, the, the, People of Israel, the Jewish people have a role in God's unfolding plan of the ages that the Guatemalan people don't have. And you could just go on and list any nation. The Australian people don't have because God has chosen Jewish people, chosen Israel to have this crucial role, this important role in his unfolding plan of the ages. Alfredo, I hope that's helpful for you. Let me go on to the next question here from Leo who asks, my question, I was Baptist at 17 and live most my life as a rebel. Now, in my later years, I'm walking with the Lord. Should I get baptized again because of the way I lived my life? Okay, Leo, um, I'm going to assume that when you were baptized, when you were 17, that there was a credible profession of faith in your life at that time, that you meant it, that you really wanted to follow Jesus. And what it sounds, is like for many years, you fell away from that commitment. And now, praise the Lord, Leo, you've returned to it. That's fantastic. Um, Wonderful. So your question is, uh, you made what seems to be a genuine commitment to the Lord at your life at 17. Then you fell away from that commitment. Now you've returned to it. You need to, you want to know... Uh, should you get baptized again? And Leo, I would say this. I'm going to give you an answer that not every Christian is going to be pleased with, and I'll be very honest about that. But nevertheless, this is my question and answer so, so I'm giving the answer. So I'll give you the answer from my perspective. Uh, Leo, I think it's entirely up to you. From the way that I would understand your situation, your first baptism was valid. Leo, I would say that you were truly born again. Now, look, I can't know for sure. I'm just looking at this from the outside, but let me spell it out and see if this rings true with you, Leo. I would say that you were genuinely born again when you were 17, that for a season you fell away from that. But the reality of the fact that you were born again is demonstrated by the fact that you've come back to it. So I don't think that you have to be baptized again, but Leo, I would say If you want to be baptized again, it's perfectly fine. Now, I know that there's some Christians who might be screaming into their device right now, however, they're listening to what I'm saying right now, because they think it's outrageous for a Christian to be baptized more than once. I just have to say, I don't share that opinion. First of all, the the one baptism that is spoken of in the scriptures— It's referring to that there's one baptism among Christians, not that a Christian can only be baptized one time. Secondly, um, as long as uh, you see Christians who object to a believer being baptized more than once treat a second or even third baptism as if it is a renunciation of the previous baptism. Well, I don't see that it has to be that at all. I could see it much more being like a renewal of vows that couples may do at their 25th wedding anniversary or their uh, 30th wedding anniversary or something like that. There's nothing wrong with that. A renewal of the vows doesn't repudiate your previous commitment. It strengthens it. So as long as somebody isn't like getting baptized every month or something, that would be definitely weird. But there's nothing wrong at certain occasions in a Christian's life, them uh, receiving baptism again. I don't see in any way how that repudiates or renounces the baptism that was done before. It sort of celebrates it. Okay, hope that's helpful for you there, um, Leo. Let me go to the next question now from Donald, who asks... Once a person accepts Jesus as Lord and is born again, is it possible for that person to live a life without sinning with the help of the Holy Spirit? Okay, Donald, that's a great question. Is it possible for a Christian to live without sinning? Um, I'll give you an inadequate answer, Donald. Yes and no. First of all, Donald, it all depends on how a person defines sin. Are we talking about sins of commission? That's sins that I actually commit. And sins of omission, things that I don't do that I should do. I can't see how it's possible for any Christian to avoid sins of omission things that uh, we should do that we don't do. I just don't see how that's possible at all. But if you were to take a very narrow definition of sin, sins of commission, or sins or, or temptations that are yielded to, with even that, in theory, we don't have to sin in those things, but in practice, we actually do. You see the next temptation that comes my way, th- there's no reason why I have to yield to it. But I'm going to yield to a temptation somewhere along the line. So in theory, if you define sin in a very narrow way, in theory, it's practice. It, it's, it's possible for Christians not to sin, but not in practice. Uh, That's in theory, not in practice. Look, uh, Donald, we will sin until our salvation is complete and our salvation will be complete in the resurrection when we are glorified. Until then, we will sin. Uh, To use the analogy that Jesus used at the Last Supper, our feet will become dirty. We in general will be cleansed. But our feet will become dirty and we'll need to have our feet washed by Jesus. Um, However, it is helpful at times for us to remember in the Christian life that there's no reason why a believer has to sin. And so uh, all we have to do is just say, I'm going to trust God in the next temptation that comes my way. And trust God to give me um, victory over that temptation, and uh, we we can see a lot of great things happen in our Christian life in obedience just by having that mentality. Hope that's helpful for you there, Donald. Let me go into the next question from Brianna, who asks, "Did Jesus weep of anger or compassion when Lazarus died?" Brianna, I would say yes, both would be true. Jesus was angry because he saw the damage that death had done. You know, uh, Jesus knew more than any person who's ever walked this earth about the great damage that death has done to humanity. And I think Jesus was angry to see that damage and all it had done. But then again, he was also compassionate. He was compassionate to the great pain that Mary and Martha and their companions had faced. And so I would just simply say, uh, Brianna, that it was both. It was both anger and compassion that made Jesus weep, as it's described there in John chapter 12. Hope that's helpful for you there. Let me go on to the next question here from Brian. Brian asks, help me understand Why a church would enforce Paul's instructions for women pastors, but make exceptions for his instructions about having men, having their house in order, husband of one wife, and no alcohol. Okay, well, Brian, let let me say a few things. First of all, a church might do that just because they're being inconsistent. And and listen, we're human beings. Sometimes we're inconsistent. Inconsistent. Sometimes we apply a standard in one place and we fail to apply it in another place. Uh, This is just sort of the human nature. This is the human condition. And so, uh, you know, it's regrettable, but it's certainly not uncommon that people are just flat out inconsistent with what they're doing. So, yes, uh, Brian, it could be inconsistency. But let me give you another aspect to where it could be... um, I think it's possible to take uh, the um, exhortation that Paul gives there in the instructions that Paul gives in Titus chapter 1 and in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for the um, qualifications for elders, for leaders in the church, for pastors, if you will. (laughs) It's possible to take those things and be legalistic about them. For example... It says that a um, an elder, a leader, an overseer of God's church should not be given to wine. Uh, they shouldn't be a drunkard. They shouldn't drink too much. Well, if a person drinks too much once, does that permanently disqualify them from leadership? I don't think so. I think it speaks of a habit of life. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think it's possible to take that list and to apply it in a legalistic, excessive way. Now, of course, most of the time, that's not the problem. Most of the time, Brian, you're absolutely correct that these things are just neglected and ignored. But there are times when people just take them and apply them in a wrong way. So um, I guess, Brian, that's what I'm just trying to get at, is that um, sometimes the problem is inconsistency. But uh, other times, um, it's it's a valid application, uh, because what you're doing is you're using those lists not as a legalistic exclusion point, but as finding the people, number one, who truly have a heart for those things, are striving for those things, and best match those qualifications um, in the congregation. So, a- again— um, th- that's why I would say, Brian, it-, it could just be simple inconsistency, or it could be from an um, uh, taking that list in the wrong way. Uh, hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, by the way, Brian, I, I do um, try to take pains to point out, whenever I'm teaching on the issue of women pastors, and if people are interested in this, you can go to the YouTube channel and see the message that I do on 1 Timothy chapter 2, that passage speaking about women uh, in positions of teaching authority in the church, Uh, and then also I have another YouTube video on our channel, um, me speaking to women pastors and what I would say to a woman pastor. So, if you're interested in that, you can look those up, but what I would want to say most specifically about that is that... uh, It's good for churches to have their mind set on this um, and and to just understand that it's not just a matter that any man can lead the church. It's not just, oh, women are excluded and any man is qualified for leadership. No, no, no. it's, It's that God has appointed the role of leadership in the church to qualified men, not unqualified men. And I'm glad you understand that and are pointing that out, Brian. Thank you for that. Next question comes from Tommy, who asks, Pastor David, when I pray for salvation for seemingly lost celebrities, such as Jay Seinfeld, is one prayer for him and others enough? Well, Tommy, I would just say this. One prayer is better than no prayers. But to be persistent in prayer is better still. I hope that makes sense to you. I'll say it again. One prayer is better than no prayers, but even better would be persistent prayer for a person. And so that that's just simply the way that I would put it, Tommy. Um, if you're really burdened for the salvation of Jay Seinfeld— uh, then um, then pray for him. Pray for him regularly. Pray for him. Jerry Seinfeld. I said Jerry Seinfeld. Um, if, th- then pray for him uh, repeatedly. But again, is one prayer better than zero prayers? Yes, it is. Uh, but Jesus encouraged us not only to pray, but to pray with persistence. I uh, hope that's helpful for you. Thank you, Tommy. Next question comes from George, who asks, what does it mean that through the law comes the knowledge of sin, and what is the purpose of the law? Well, George, very good question. C- can I just say, we have an amazing audience who asks tremendous questions. Tremendous questions. Okay, um, what does it mean that through the law comes the knowledge of sin? One of the purposes of God's law is to clarify for us what sin is. Now, as Paul explains in Romans chapters 1 and 2, God has given mankind conscience. And part of his revelation to mankind is through conscience. There is an innate knowledge of sin through conscience. But it's not always clear and we can, um, we can shape our conscience in sinful ways. So, the revelation of God's law is a much better, a much uh, more exact, a, a much more um, descriptive account of what sin is. So, God gave his law so that we would know what sin is, and... Another one of God's great purposes for the law is to, with that knowledge of sin, is to drive us to our need for a Savior. Now, George, when you say, what is the purpose of the law? I would say that there's not only one purpose of the law. Uh, One purpose of the law is to define what sin is for us and to do it more exactly than conscience ever would. A A second use of the law is to uh, show us our need for a savior to demonstrate to us that we can't keep the law in its fullness, certainly not in its true meaning. And then a further use of the law is to show us just how God wants us to live, his general will revealed to humanity. So all of those things kind of work together, concretely, to show us um, God's use of the law, there's not just one purpose, but one of the important purposes of the law is, as Paul writes in Galatians, to be a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, to show us our need of a Savior. Hope that's helpful for you there, George. Um, hey, I do just want to give you guys a little bit of an update, as we're kind of in between questions right here. Uh, an update uh, regarding the fact that uh, we're back from our Mediterranean cruise. Last week, the live Q&A was done from Deck 15 of the Celebrity Apex cruise ship, where we had an enduring word uh, cruise leading a group of about 120 people. And our cruise was prevented from visiting Israel and prevented from is visiting Egypt because of the great... Um, crisis going on there with the brutal attack from Hamas on October 7th. On October 7th, we were sailing for Haifa and we were supposed to spend the day in Galilee on October 8th, but obviously that didn't happen because of the great crisis there. And now the world is taken with Israel's response. In the beginning of this video, I spent a great deal of time talking about uh, what God's plan is for Israel in the future. That God does have a plan for Israel, that he hasn't given up on Israel, he hasn't forsaken Israel, but they have an enduring role in his unfolding plan of the ages. I think this is very important for us to uh, to hold on to. But that God's eventual plan for Israel is for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ, their Messiah. This is very clear from Romans chapter 11, where Paul says, all Israel will be saved. And this is a great mystery that God is revealing to the church, revealing to his people. Uh, But as well, it's also indicated in many Old Testament passages. You know, to me, one of the most compelling things I find is when you study the new covenant in the Old Testament, Uh, These are passages in the Old Testament, uh, such as Ezekiel chapter 11, starting at verse 16. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 24. Jeremiah chapter 23, starting at verse 3. These are new covenant passages, and these new covenant passages have as part of the new covenant, the restoration of Israel. Friends, and when I say restoration to Israel, I do not mean only their restoration to the land. That's part of it. I don't mean only their restoration to national strength. That's part of it. But their restoration to true faith in their covenant God, Yahweh, who is perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. In other words, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, uh, the Jewish people will one day come to believe in Jesus, their Messiah, all Israel, all Israel will be saved. And again, I believe that when it says all Israel in Hebrews chapter 11, it's not speaking of each and every last person of Jewish context, but as a whole, the Jewish people will not be a Christ rejecting people as they largely are now, but a Christ accepting people coming to Jesus in both repentance and faith as it says very dramatically in that passage, in the prophet Zechariah. You know that passage, how important, how critical it is. Zechariah chapter 12, beginning at verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Yes, friends, that is the future of Israel. They will look upon him whom they have pierced with mourning, with repentance, with trusting faith. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, all Israel will be saved. And so um, that's really God's plan ultimately for Israel. And if I can add this, even though uh, it's a God's plan for Israel, also continues on into what I would consider to be the millennial earth. Because, friends, I believe very strongly that Jesus Christ will return and then establish his kingdom over all the nations of the earth. And when Jesus does that, then Israel will be a leading nation on the earth. Um, And so that's a very uh, important phase in what God will have for Israel in the millennium. Um, So, I think it's important to say that even though Christians have and through the centuries have had different um, views, different perspectives on the place of Israel in God's unfolding plan, he certainly does have a important unfolding plan for Israel in his great plan of the ages. Okay, uh, let me check here to our... um, Questions here. Hey, thanks so much for the super chat uh, that came in, Paul. I appreciate that. Uh, We never ask for super chats, but if people want to do it, well, that's a blessing. God bless you. Um, Let me go to a question here from Spades who asks um, Did the requested sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham cost Abraham his marriage? Genesis doesn't specifically mention his return to Sarah until he goes to mourn for her after her death. Well, spades, I I would say no. I I don't think so. Um, I think if there was a division between Abraham and Sarah, uh, it would have been noted in the scriptures. And specifically, if Abraham had uh, actually um, followed through and he did not come back with Isaac, that might have been a breach between him and Sarah. But please remember this. Abraham only offered Isaac— because he was absolutely confident in God's ability to raise him from the dead. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 says. So Abraham knew that Isaac was going to come back with him alive to Sarah. And I don't know if Sarah had the same faith, uh, but she trusted her husband and her husband's trust in God. Right, let me go on to the next question here from Dan, who asks, Do you feel like there isn't enough reminder preaching like Peter taught? Like when some people know of God's armor, but don't ever really think about it because they heard it once before. Well, Dan, I I, I do think that that sometimes is a problem. Uh, Sometimes preachers feel that they have to be too creative, that they have to come up with something that nobody has ever heard before. And I tell you, this can really lead to some great difficulties where preachers are trying to be too creative and and trying to um, wow people with things they ever heard. Dan, you're putting your finger on something that's very true. A large measure of a preacher's work is to remind people of things that they already know. Hey, listen, I want to speak to Christians right now who sometimes sit in church and say, well, I've heard this before. Listen, first of all, please understand that your pastor is doing something biblical when he's preaching reminders to the people. Just as Stan points out, that's something that's spoken about there in by Peter. <clears throat> but the second thing I would want to point out is, not only is your pastor doing something biblical there, but are you living it? Don't tell me that you've heard it before, but are you living what your pastor is preaching? Uh, that's even more important than just the idea that I've heard this before. So thank you for that, Dan. Uh, next one comes from Mr. Who Asks. Why does the church teach that we're to give our unequivocal support to Israel regardless of whether or not they receive Jesus as their Messiah or stay true to the teachings of the Torah? Great question there, mister. Um, Let me give you just a minute here. Okay, mister, it's true that, as I said before in the beginning, Nobody should think that Israel, the modern state of Israel, is beyond criticism. I believe with all my heart that Israel has a right to the land. As I said before, they have a biblical right to the land. They have a moral right to the land. And I'm speaking of the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. Uh, They have a political right to the land. I believe that that's true in the modern day. However, they also have a responsibility to act right to their own citizens, Jewish, Arabic, Christian. Absolutely, they have a responsibility to act right to their own citizens and to their neighbors. And when they don't do that, it's not wrong for the world to hold them to account as long as they do it consistently, as they would do with other people in other nations. Um, But again, the support Christians give to Israel is sometimes excessive. I'll agree with that. But the fundamental reason for giving support to Israel is not because they're believers. They're not. I- Israel is a secular state, by and large. Most Jewish people in Israel are secular. Obviously, there's a strong Orthodox community in Israel, but they're the minority. The majority of Israeli Jews are secular, and certainly they're not Christians. So we don't support them because they're a Christian country. No, not at all. But because the Jewish people have an enduring role in God's unfolding plan of the ages. And biblically speaking, as well as I think politically and morally, they have a right to that land. That's the simple way that I would say it, mister. Uh, Although I do despair sometimes when Christians support Israel to the expense of showing love and care to the Palestinian community and the Christian community, especially among the Arabic peoples of the region. Uh, That makes me despair sometimes. And and sometimes when Christians give absolutely uncritical support to Israel, uh, we don't give uncritical support to anybody or anything. Nobody is above God's law. So I hope that's helpful for you there, mister. Jared says, um, Pastor David, do you have any general advice about leading a Bible study? Jared, if you're leading a Bible study, and I assume that means you're teaching the Bible study, here's what you need to do. Keep this in mind. Just try to explain and apply the scriptures simply and clearly. Make that your goal. Don't try to be eloquent. I think a lot of preachers, a lot of people, especially teaching a home Bible study or something like that, they get in trouble because they're trying to be eloquent. Don't try to be eloquent. Try to be clear and simple, explaining and applying the scriptures. And you know what? You, you may just come across some eloquence as you try to be plain and simple, uh, but that's what people need. They don't need our great rhetoric. They don't need our great eloquence. They need the clear, simple teaching of God's truth. So uh, let God's word and truth fill you, fill your heart, fill your mind, and then just seek to explain it to people clearly and simply. Hope that helps you, Jared, and God bless you as you lead a Bible study. That's a wonderful thing for you to do. Uh, Roll with it, asks, or roll and with, says... I just started learning the Bible. So my question is, is Jesus God and the Lord the same? Well, rolling with it, sometimes, here it is, Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, but sometimes the scriptures will use the word God or Lord referring to God, the Father or God, the Holy Spirit. So you just have to read in context. Is this a general reference to God? Is this a reference to Jesus Christ? Is this a reference to God the Father? Is this a reference to God the Holy Spirit? <coughs> because uh, those phrases are used uh, in, in describing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, uh, sometimes there's a distinction. You just have to look at it in context. And uh, Roland, if you're just starting to learn the Bible, that's a fantastic thing. Learn it according to context. Just look at it and see if a specific reference to God in a passage uh, refers to Jesus, refers to God the Father, refers to the Holy Spirit, or maybe it's just a generic reference to God that could encompass the Trinity as a whole. Thank you for that. Roll with it. Uh, Andrea asked the question, um... Why is the word helper or advocate in John 14 referring to the Holy Spirit capitalized in the Bible? Is it a God given title? Okay, Andrea, great question. Here's just what you have to realize. Okay, since you talk about the New Testament, I'll talk about the Greek manuscripts. There is no capitalization in the Greek manuscripts. So that capitalization of that title is something inserted by the translators. So what you just have to decide is, is that a fair insertion or an unfair assertion? I like capitalizing titles and pronouns when they refer to God. And since the Holy Spirit is God, if he's given the title advocate, I'm in favor of giving it a capital A. But that's something assigned by the translators, not assigned by the original text because there were no distinction between capital letters or small lowercase letters in the uh, original manuscripts. So, uh, I think it's fair. I like titles and pronouns when referring to God to be capitalized, although many modern Bible Bible translations don't do that, but I don't like that about them. I like that about the New King James. Okay, next question uh, comes from Mary. I was baptized as a child, months old, by sprinkling. Should I be baptized again now in adulthood by immersion? Mary, I'll just give you a very quick answer. I say absolutely yes. I believe unequivocally in believer's baptism. And if someone was baptized as a child, apart from their own profession of faith, I think that they should be baptized as an adult, as someone who makes a profession of faith. Again, I understand that this is controversial. There's other Christians who would give you other answers to that. But I believe in believers' baptism. And I don't believe that infant baptism accomplishes anything. Period. And so uh, I believe that believers' baptism is what the Bible teaches. So thank you for your question there, Mary. Um, uh, Mictalia asks, do you believe the earth was created with an age? Like creation, the trees were already big, not plants. Adam was not created as a child. So maybe that's why science thinks that the world is so old. Uh, Myctalia, uh, I think so, yes. I think that's very plausible. I have no problem with God creating the world with the appearance of age. Now listen, I know some people who really disagree with that. There's some people who really get bent out of shape with that idea. They say that it's deceptive for God to build the earth with apparent age. Look, all I can say is I just disagree. I, I don't see how that is some kind of offense. I don't see how that's being God being deceptive. I don't think it was deceptive of God to create Adam as an adult. I don't think it was deceptive of God to create Eden with full-grown, mature trees. Trees that had the appearance of being 30 years old. uh, Or Adam with the appearance of being 20 or 25 or 30 years old. So, uh, Mikdala, I have no problem with that whatsoever. God creating a universe with apparent age. And again, I understand that old earth creationists have a big problem with that, but uh, I just don't see it. So uh, thank you that for that question. Um, oh boy, here's a difficult to pronounce name. I'll just say Gabriel. Uh, what does the Bible say about patriotism? Well, um, Gabriel, I would say the Bible says this about patriotism. That the Bible says that we should be good citizens of where we live. That we should pay our taxes. That we should pray for those in leadership over for us. That we should be good citizens. And part of being a good citizen is being patriotic, being loyal and having a loyalty. Now, it's not a, a unreserved loyalty. If my nation is participating in something evil and wicked, I should not participate in that. And if I have any voice in turning my nation from that evil and wickedness, it's appropriate for me to do that. But in general, God wants us to be good citizens, and there's certainly a measure of patriotism that's appropriate for that. God has divided the world into nations. That's what it says back in Genesis at the division of the world in the Tower of Babel. That's what it says later on in the New Testament, where it says that God has appointed different peoples for different places and different um, uh, nations. So, God has appointed the division of nations, and because God has done that, I think that the existence of nations is a good thing. And so it's appropriate for citizens of particular nations to have some appropriate pride in where they're from. There's nothing wrong with a Swede being proud of Sweden. Could it be excessive? Of course it could. There's nothing wrong with a uh, Frenchman being proud of France, Uh, with a Ugandan being proud of Uganda, with an Argentinian to be proud of Argentine. I don't think there's anything wrong with an American being proud of America. Could it be excessive? Could it be idolatrous? Of course it could, but anything can. So um, really, it just gets back to this. God tells us as believers to be good citizens. And I think that there's a measure of patriotism that's appropriate for good citizens. So that's how I would answer that. Well, folks, we're coming to the uh, close of our program today. I am so, so pleased that you could join us. What a great time we've had today. And I want to say this. Thank you for your prayers. There have been people who have prayed for us because they thought that we might be in some danger because on our recent cruise, as I've said before, last week I was broadcasting from the uh, the deck of uh, a cruise ship, the 15th deck, uh, because we were on a Mediterranean cruise and we weren't able to go to Israel, we weren't able to go to Egypt because of the great crisis there with Israel's war with Hamas. The day we were sailing towards Haifa was the day, October 7th, when Hamas did all these terrible things, these outrageous um, murders and kidnappings and all the rest of the evil that they did. And now Israel is responding with war. And friends, it's going to be a mess over there for a while. But but let me say this. Uh, there were people who were worried for our safety. Now, I got to say very honestly, I was never really worried about our safety, uh, but I'm so grateful for those people who prayed. God bless you for doing that. It's very kind of you to have that thought towards us. But anyway, let me end with this. Uh, We have Bible resources at EnduringWord.com. You can join, if I can say this, I hope this doesn't sound strange for me to say, but you can join the literally millions of people worldwide that use our Bible resources on a regular basis enduringword.com. But then we also have an outstanding app for your iPhone or for your Android device that is available, of course, absolutely free. I'm looking on my phone to see where I can look up the app because uh, I should have it more. There's the Enduring Word app. You can look it up. It is a fantastic um, uh, app available absolutely free friends, we give away these digital resources. We have our uh, website. We have our app. We have our YouVersion uh, Bible plans, which a new one has recently come out in several languages. Uh, We have our radio program. We have our weekly devotionals. We have all the other resources that we put out. We have everything we put out on our YouTube channel and podcasts. So, I hope that you take advantage of these resources. They're there for you to use. Look, we don't have subscriptions. We don't have VIP zones. Because for us, all of you are VIPs. And uh, we're so pleased just to offer these resources. So thank you very much, everybody, for joining us today. We'll see you again shortly. God bless you. And thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.